A few of you in here might know this very well-known individual called Kanye West. Now, Kanye West is one of the most famous rap singers and has become a billionaire through his influence in the music world. Now, he's not my style in any sense of the word, but he's famous without me. Somehow he managed that. He's also married to Kim Kardashian, who is a central character of a TV reality show called The Kardashians. And her father is the famous Bruce Jenner, who most of us know transitioned himself to Caitlyn Jenner and won Glamour Magazine Woman of the Year Award. Kanye West is also known for his arrogance and his profanity. Now, around a year ago, Kanye began to make a major turn in another direction in his life. He became a conservative born-again Christian. The first I've heard of it was when he met last year with some of the leaders of the Christian University that I attended my first year of college. And he met with some of their leaders and, and uh, has actually had time to interact theologically with them in some regards. And I learned then that he made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and is becoming very public about it. As his conversion became more public, the press caught on and has not quite known what to make of it. What do we do with this guy who was cutting edge and a cultural shaper and influencer? And some are skeptical and hostile, and others are just inquisitive. What's going on with this guy? For example, the New Yorker magazine had a recent article about his new album titled, Jesus is King. The article comments on the album, but more importantly about how it's different. It has a very clear Christian message. As the author finds the change interesting, but you find a sense of skepticism in her review. And she wonders if this is just another passing phase for Kanye, because Kanye has been known to bounce around philosophically, you know, whatever. So maybe this is just another passing phase for him. Now her skepticism has some grounding. We have all seen people publicly convert to Christianity, only see them drift back into their old ways once the initial hype is all over. And when we read about such conversions, we often ask, is it real or will it stick? Which brings us to a bigger question. If one is genuinely saved and has become a child of God, can they lose their salvation at a later time? This is one of the questions that was posed to me in the question cards that you filled out some months ago. So I don't know who asked the question, but it's a good question and one that most people have pondered along the way sometime. And so although it's not exactly a why question, I do want to respond to the question. And I want to argue this morning that if you're depending on your salvation based on your works, the answer is yes, you can lose it. Well, maybe not because you never really had it in the first place. But... That is not what the Bible teaches about salvation. It's not based on works. It's not even just based on a decision per se. I'll explain that later. If your salvation is based on the finished work of Christ, then your answer is no. You cannot lose your salvation. So let's take a closer look at that argument. And we're going to look at many scriptures to make the case. So I'm going to be moving rather quickly. So um, I'll try to pace it in such a way that we can all stay on the same place. Responding to the question can you lose your salvation? And my first response is this. If it's yours, you can't have it. If it's Christ, you can't. Well, let me explain that. Due to original sin means none of us can save ourselves. Romans 5.12 reminds us that due to Adam's sin in the garden, we have all sinned and we're all tainted by sin. We call it original sin. Notice what Paul says about this in those verses. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, 
and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Now, that's a Greek thing called an aorist, meaning everybody's included, past tense, in that sin of Adam. And the point is that through Adam, we all inherit a sin nature that separates us from God. Now, there, historically, there have been two competing views of salvation. The first one is Pelagius versus Augustine. This is the great debate that happened for about the 4th century AD. Pelagius was a British monk who fled to North Africa where he met Augustine, British of Hippo. Hippo is the word for horse. Augustine was saved in an ego-shattering conversion experience, making it easy for him to believe in the depravity of man and the sovereignty of grace. So Pelagius taught several things. He believed that the sin of Adam only affected Adam himself, not the whole world, Adam alone, and that every child is born in the condition of innocence which characterized Adam before the fall. Therefore, death is not universal because of Adam. There's another reason, nor is it the resurrection of Christ because of Christ. The law as well as the gospel leads to salvation, that grace is not necessary for salvation and given according to merit, and that the human will is free and capable of good apart from the grace of God. As Pelagius said, our victory over sin and Satan proceeds not from the help which God affords, but is owing to our own free will, the gifts of grace being only necessary to enable men to do what more easily and completely, which yet they could not do for themselves. The error here, and it was considered a heresy, it has a false view of man that minimizes the effects of the fall and the nature of sin. In other words, in this view, you can lose your salvation because it's dependent on how well you obey the law, the Mosaic law. And it brings up the question, of course, so how good do you have to be to keep your salvation? Or how bad do you have to be to lose it? You see, there's no security in this view. It's always dependent on how well you're living up to that standard according to time. And where is the line that draws it? Now opposed to this area was Augustine who taught that the sin of Adam affected all his descendants so that every man is born with a corrupt nature, depraved and prone to sin. That freedom of the human will was lost by the fall and that any good in human life must spring from divine grace. That grace is irresistible. We'll talk about that later. That grace operates in accordance with election, the belief that God ultimately is the one who chooses. The teaching of Augustine prevailed, and the doctrines of Pelagius were condemned by the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD. However, there is today, even in many of our circles, a modified form called semi-Pelagianism. It's continued to influence the church. Semi-Pelagianism is a view which sought to steer clear of the difficulties of Pelagianism by giving a place in conversion for both divine grace and human will. It did not deny human corruption, but regarded man's nature as weakened or diseased rather than as fatally injured by the fall. Fallen human nature retains an element of freedom in virtue in which it can operate with divine grace, meaning it's human works and divine grace that saves one. And conversion is the joint product of those two factors. That debate ended. Augustine won the debate. 1,100 years later, it creeped right back up, where we have the Calvin versus Arminius debate. John Calvin was born almost 1,100 years after the death of Augustine. In 1536, at the age of 27, Calvin first published the Institutes of Christian Religion. You can get them free on the internet, by the way, now. You don't have to pay for them. 
the mnemonic device sometimes that he presented is used as an acrostic form to help us to remember his five points of Calvinism under the word tulip. Maybe you've heard this before. Tulip is this. T is the total depravity that every area of man has been tainted by sin. Because of it, man is dead to sin and his will has been corrupted. We also see the U, unconditional election, meaning it's God who unconditionally chooses us. L is limited atonement. Christ died only for the elect. One is irresistible grace. That one sees the love and the grace and the mercy of God. You can't help but be drawn to it. It draws you in. And then P is perseverance of the saints. That's where the doctrine of eternal security comes from. The P, perseverance of the saints. And all those Calvin's theology has an emphasis similar to that of Augustine. He owes his system to his study of the scriptures rather than Augustine directly, meaning they both drew their conclusions independently by their own study of scripture and came to essentially the same conclusion. But later, another person named Arminius, he was born in Holland only four weeks before the death of Calvin. He later became a professor at a prestigious college, and he believed he could revise the Calvinistic convection with the tulip. He petitioned the states of Holland and called a general synod for that purpose, but they rejected his proposal. But his followers later presented a, a petition, which included five articles, that election is con uh, conditional of divine foreknowledge, that redemption is for all men, not just believers, that man is unable to obtain saving grace except through regeneration, that grace is not wholly efficient or irresistible, meaning there has to be more than grace involved. Works has to come into play. And regenerates are able by divine grace to resist all temptation, but may not do so and may be lost. In other words, if you are saved and regenerated, you can live up to the standards of the law. These views as a whole were later reevaluated and condemned by the Synod of Dort in 1619. And the canons defined and reaffirmed the five points of Calvinism that we looked at just a moment ago. Let me just sum it up. The first crisis centered around Augustine and Pelagius. The second, some 1,100 years later, around Calvin and Arminius. Basically the same argument in both cases. And while these later two never met in personal conflict, their system of theology clashed then and have continued in irreconcilable conflict in the present day. Christian thinking continues to move in one of these two general areas. Either we are saved by works and by the law, and we can lose our salvation, or we're saved by Christ's finished work alone, and we cannot. But that brings up another point, is that God's divine sovereignty is what makes salvation possible. You see, man's free will is limited. We all have a free will. I talked about that some weeks ago, but it's limited in its capacity. Adam had the choice of eating from the tree in the garden, but once that choice was made, he became powerless to redeem himself. God had to intervene. Calvin called it total depravity, which means that every aspect of man's being is tainted by sin so that even his free will, the ability to make the right choices, is tainted and corrupted and now is depraved. Our will becomes enslaved to sin. And here's the key point regarding free will. The will always pursues its highest desire. Listen to that. The will always pursues its highest desire. The theologian John Edwards points out that the decisions of our will does not lie within itself. It is determined by the strongest motive or desire as we perceive it at the time. As a result, 
all men in a sense are enslaved as Paul says in Romans 6 16 to 23 we're enslaved either to righteousness or to sin what is the strongest desire that motivates you Christ later said everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin we're all enslaved to do what we esteem our most desirable in any given moment and make decisions based on that desire the desire itself has been corrupted and tainted and we're enslaved to do what we desires most freedom of the will is limited by our strongest desire the strongest the sovereign intervention of god is required for our salvation because sin has so tainted our desires so tainted our will that god has to intervene we cannot save ourselves god must do that for us and that is what he did for the believer salvation is a work of christ your salvation is totally dependent on Christ. Salvation is a free gift. It cannot be earned. It cannot be deserved. We cannot earn it by an act of the will. It must be given to us, and we must accept it. Irresistible grace makes that possible. Even the faith to believe in God is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves it. What's the it referred to? The faith, the grace, the gift. It's all a gift from God. Even the ability to believe is a gift from God. It's not by works, so no one can boast. None of us can go to God and say, God, I'm a pretty good guy. You've got to accept me. To which God says, you ain't that good. Here's my standard, and here you are. You're not there. The Bible teaches that God chooses us for salvation. For example, Paul says in Ephesians 1 to 3 to 6, and this is just one of many passages I could refer to, just don't have the time. It says, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given to the one he loves. You see, even being born again, we use that phrase. It comes from John chapter 3 and John chapter 1. Even being born again is an act of the Father's will. It's not our will that does it. Notice what he says. He, in verse 11 of John 1, he, Jesus, came to that which was his own, the Jews, but his own did not receive him. And yet all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But notice it says this, children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. If salvation were dependent on us, none of us in this room have any hope, plain and simple. It is the work of Christ that gives us an everlasting hope. One ad for the U.S. Marines pictures a sword, and beneath it, the words, earned, never forgiven. So if you want to become a Marine, be prepared to earn that through sacrifice, through hardship and training. If you get it, you deserve it. But if you want to become a Christian, you must have the exact opposite attitude from the message of the gospel is given, never earned. You cannot save your own soul, and God will not save anyone who tries to earn salvation, but only those who humbly receive it as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. If you get it, you absolutely did not deserve it. It is not earned through works, neither is it lost through works. 
what it does do is change our hearts and our motives, that greatest desire. So our heart is bent to desire God. There's a second response to the question, can you lose your salvation? Is this, if it's yours, you can lose it. If it's Christ, you cannot. Our security is based on the finished work of Christ. Notice what 1 Peter 3-5 says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. Historically, in the early years of the church, the sacrament of baptism was seen as the assurance of salvation. So if baptism is the assurance of salvation, then logically it only makes sense that we should baptize people as early as possible, or so they thought. An entire theology came out of that. We call it infant baptism. Let's baptize them as quickly as possible to be assured that they're secured of their salvation. Now that changed with the Reformation, which taught that Scripture alone was our authority and that faith alone is needed for salvation. And another kind of logic came out of that. The assurance of baptism was taken away with their separation from the Catholic Church. It was a shift from the objectivity of the sacrament of baptism to a shift to the objectivity of the atonement and accomplished by Christ. Justification by faith alone became the base of salvation. It does not begin with the Christian. It begins with Christ. And the promises of God now become the basis of our insurance. It led them back to the objectivity of the sovereignty of God. If God is sovereign, he will always accomplish what he sets out to do. And if he wants to save us, he will accomplish it. As Romans 11, 28-29 says, As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake, referring to the heathen Gentiles. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. We also learn that salvation is the objective, sovereign act of God. John 6, 37-40 says this, All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me and raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Wow, sounds pretty permanent to me. Sounds pretty secure. Or how about John 10, 28 to 30 says, the Jews who were gathering around him saying, how long will you keep in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand and I and the Father are one. Or how about John 6? 35 to 37, Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, 
and whoever comes to me I will never drive away or how about Ephesians 4.30 and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption or Jude 24 to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy these are just a sampling of the passages that support the same thing but there's one last one I think that is significant and that is that nothing can separate us from love of God Romans chapter 8 34 to 39 says this who then is the one who condemns no one Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we face all death all along we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered no and all things were more than conquerors who him who loved us for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers nor height or death or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus you get it the point is this nothing no one not even you are powerful enough to separate you from the love of God Queen Victoria who was pondering this very question had gotten some bad advice and was sent a letter by Tom Townsend to correct her and after receiving that letter that cited some of these passages I've decided she wrote back to him about two weeks later said to Dr. Townsend I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of Scripture referred to. I believe in the finished work of Christ for me and trust my God's grace to meet you in that home of which he said, I go and prepare a place for you. Signed, Victoria Guelph, after Queen Victoria's discovery of Christian assurance, after discovery that Christian assurance, she wrote and carried a small book to give away. She didn't write it, but, it was bought, but she would give away to everybody. It was called The Safety, The Certainty, and Enjoyment. That that's what she found in Jesus Christ. You see, the finished work of Christ on the cross is the basis for our assurance for eternal salvation. We will go through all kinds of stages in life, all kinds of phases, but always need to return to this. My salvation is secure because what God has done for me on the cross. Can it be abused? Absolutely, and it's used, abused a lot, but it doesn't change the reality. Now there's a third and final point, and that if salvation is yours, something you earned, you're hopeless. If it's Christ, you're not. And I'm going to cite some passages that people often use to say, well, you can lose your salvation. And the first point I want to make is that you cannot go back to the Old Covenant. There's a passage in Hebrews 6. The passage is most often used to argue that, yeah, you can lose salvation. Here's the passage. And let's read it. It says in Hebrews 6, 1 to 4, it is possible for those who were once been enlightened and who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again, subjecting him to public disgrace. If you understand the context that the author of Hebrews is arguing here, it makes perfectly good sense and is not all inconsistent with salvation as being secure. And I preached on it some times ago when I preached on the book of Hebrews, but let me just summarize it quickly. You see, Paul's argument throughout all the book of Hebrews is that Christ is superior to the angels, to Moses, to the law. 
He's talking about how the old covenant has been superseded by the new covenant. The new covenant now is the one that God works through and operates through. And what was happening is that as some of these Hebrews had come to Christ, they were turning back to the old covenant to find support and a basis for what they believed. And Paul's saying, you can't go back. It's done away. The new covenant superseded. It's no longer there. It's gone. It's impossible to go back to those old things again. That's the argument that he's making. There's only one covenant that we work and operate under right now. It's called the new covenant. And that is when we accept by faith Jesus Christ as God who died for his son on the cross, we are declared children of God. But there's also another issue about the question, what about these people that come to Christ and seem to drift away? Christ spoke to that issue in Matthew 13, 18 to 23. He said this, That same day Jesus came out of the house and sat by the lake, and such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. And then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, but the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seeds fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still, other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let him hear. You get his point? The second soil addresses the question, what about those whose faith shows signs of life, but they fall away? There weren't general believers. They never had any fruit because there were no roots where they were planted. There were just seeds that started to show apparent life, but there are no roots to grow into. If your faith is genuine, there's going to be roots, and no one is capable of holding ourselves to Christ. The roots have to be because of what Christ has done. Christ is ever faithful to hold us to himself. But there's a Another point that comes into play here as we talk about this topic, and that is God disciplined those he loves. Hebrews 12 to 11, there's other passages. I'm just going to go through the Hebrews one. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have completely forgotten his word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses its son. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone who accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest. That is to say, as Christians, once we get off course, it's very likely that God will discipline us. And we need to remember that we are always loved by God. God disciplines those he loves. Even when the discipline is harsh, God never feels contemptuous toward us. Just because you're going through hard times, just because you're questioning things in life, it may be God's way of teaching you or maybe God's way of disciplining you. But it doesn't mean 
that he's abandoned you. So this morning we responded to the question, can you lose your salvation? And I argue that if your salvation is the work of Christ, the answer is no. And I've been excited to hear the conversion of Conray West. And the signs are encouraging to me. I think it might be genuine. But it does not rest on his subjective experience. It must rest on the sovereign work of Christ who saves us through the finished work of Christ. Two things before I close. If salvation is based on a subjective emotion or experience alone, it may not last. If you base your salvation on some high experience that you had somewhere in your Christian journey, good luck if you're thinking that's your basis for your salvation because emotions can change daily. Experiences can change. It must be based on objective reality that is outside of our fickle experience. Number two, revivalism which I'm a big fan of. Some of the great revivals of history have been significant turning points in history, but there's a tendency for it to return to subjectivity. It tried to avoid Pelagianism, but it failed. Out of revivalism, the phrase once saved, always saved came. But it says, I'm saved because of my decision in Christ. But salvation cannot be faced on a subjective feeling or simply the decision. There has to be something objective on the other side of that. It is based on the objective death and resurrection of Jesus. Once saved, always saved, go back to a transactional decision. But it could also mean that we can have a transactional decision to reject Jesus at some later point. So the ground for my insurance is not my profession in Jesus. It is his atonement and its reality. In his sermon, Todd Wilson tells a powerful story of rescue in a life and death situation. He says, as the country is still reeling from many tragic events, but there are a few flashes of hope coming forth from the stories of tragedy. And one is from a survivor of the 2015 San Bernardino shootings, 27-year-old Denise Peraza. Her life was spared not because the shooter saw her and turned the other way, but because a valiant man named Shannon Johnson shielded her body and his own and saved her life. Listen to her account of the, of the situation. She says, Wednesday morning, 10.55 a.m., we were seated next to each other at a table joking about how we thought the large clock in the wall might be broken because time seemed to be moving slowly. And I would never have guessed that only five minutes later we'd be huddled next to each other under the table using a fallen chair as a shield from over 60 rounds of bullets being fired across the room. While I cannot recall every single second that played out that morning, I will always remember his left arm wrapped around me, holding me as close as possible next to him behind the chair. And amidst all the chaos, I'll always remember him saying these words. I got you. Always, no matter what, remember these three words. I got you. These are God's three words to you, not just in time of need, but all the time. He's your everlasting Father through the Lord Jesus Christ who will never leave you, who will never save you. He says to you, I got you. I got you. I got you. And in that, our hope is secure.